In April 2010, I sat down with choreographers Kathleen Marshall and Jerry Mitchell and dance arrangers David Chase and Mark Hummel at this director-choreographer network entitled Working with Dance Arrangers. Hello, I'm SDC director-choreographer Edie Cowan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. So welcome everybody. Um, we will start. We have a fabulous panelist with us tonight. We're doing choreographers working with dance arrangers. Kathleen Jerry, Marshall. Like us Jerry. Jerry Mitchell. I'll let David Chase. And Mark Hummel. And you all. Okay. <laughs> Yeah! <laughs> Thank you all so much. So I'd like to jump right into it and ask our two choreographers maybe to begin by just taking us through the process of working with a dancer, creating the dance arrangement. Can Ladies first. <laughs> mothers <laughs> to be. Well, <laughs> mothers to be first. Um, well, first of all, it's an incredible privilege when you get to work with an artist uh, like David or Mark and work on a dance arrangement. I mean, so many times as a choreographer... A lot of times, you're, if you're doing a show that already exists, you know, you're, you're dealing with an existing score. And you, you're sort of now trying to listen to the, you know, dance music, most of which is not recorded, right? You know, you get the original <coughs> cast album, and you're lucky if a third or a quarter of the dance music is on that album. And you're trying to sort of, you know, you've been hired to do this musical at St. Louis Muni or something like that. And how are you going to, you know, create your vision to, to fit this existing music? So the privilege of getting to work with a dance arranger means you get to start from scratch in the room trying to figure out what do we want this dance to be? What do we want it to say? Where do we want it to go? Um, you know, starting with the composer's original song and composition, how are we going to expand this into a dance arrangement? I think a lot of people don't even quite know what dance arrangers do um, because... I certainly don't. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't. You know? because, because it's such a, a you know, a... Are often a rare opportunity to get to work with um, with one. I mean, one great thing that I love working with David is that we're both kind of, you know, um, research fiends. We both love to sort of find out, you know, if there was, if it's a revival, you know, what existed before, uh, when it takes place, where it takes place, trying to do research for what was the music of that time, what was on the radio, what were... You know what was what was popular at the time, all of that kind of stuff, and then trying to filter that into um, into what can become the dance arrangement. And try to tell someone in England what a dance arrangement. <laughs> oh yeah, they don't. They really they don't. Know. No, no, no idea. idea. Yeah. Really. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that I think that it's sort of a several pronged approach, which is that we start sort of figuring out what is this dance going to be about. What is this? How is the progress of this dance going to be? Is it a, you know is it a, group number, is it a, you know, is it a two, is it one couple, you know, what is, what is the story that's going to be told in this dance, and what are the, what are the, and, and the sort of beats of it, um, and at the same time that you're sort of figuring out that, David may be working out sort of compositions, and sort of thinking, you know, theme and variations on this, whatever the song is, that, that is going to emerge into this dance, and so a lot of times it kind of comes from a, a couple approaches, I think, to sort of then piece together like a puzzle as to how you're going to go forward. But I think the key thing is you can't really begin on any piece of music until you've had the conversations about what is it about? What are we trying to achieve? Is it, are we consciously telling a story? Is it a, is it a you know, book number that has some kind of movement or dance extension? Is it, a, you know, is it a performance number because it takes place in a nightclub or something like that? And that has a very different feel and approach, and, and I, what Kathleen was saying about research, I think, is very important because, you know, it, it can't exist in its own uh, weird space. It has to be relative to the entire rest of the score, to the period that the score is in, to the way that, especially in the context of, of a revival, how a modern audience's ears perceive 
the music of a certain time or to what extent the music as it was written at that time is perceived by an audience of today if that makes sense I mean, yes be, but but sometimes that rule's broken yes and that's I mean, and you have to you know, know the rules to you know, be able to it, break it's, it yeah. but it's but you're right it starts with a conversation between you and yeah. the collaborator and oftentimes the composer if they're if they're if alive a composer or, who's alive yeah. and working with you because they will certainly have something to say about how you take their song and how you what you do with it so yeah so but like I'm, I'm thinking more specifically like yeah. in Phantom of the Opera for mm-hmm. instance you know dun, 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 dun. that's that certainly isn't the period that Phantom of the Opera no. is in right. suddenly you feel like you're at a disco <laughs> the Phantom of the Opera <laughs> so well, you know, so the yes. story of them descending down into the lair is completely like almost a dis- the first time I heard it. I remember thinking, "Oh my God, this is so today." I feel like I'm at the disco. Of course, that was 1980 something. Yeah. Well, but the interesting yeah. thing will be if somebody comes back and does a revival of Phantom and changes that. in 50 years. Well, yeah. they say, "Well, the only reason that disco beat is there is because there it was the, that it was, was 1980. What, it was 1980, whatever." Yeah. Um, so, and who knows? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's in, always interesting to me to like to listen to, for example, um, like sophisticated ladies, which use all the original Ellington charts, yeah. but because it was 77, 79, yeah. all the drum beats changed to pop current drum beats. But it wouldn't have happened that way if somebody, I mean, if you did sophisticated ladies now again, the drums, you know, would you go back to. The, what was originally played on the Ellington charts, or would you get something that seemed more modern to our ears now, but which in 30 or 40 years will sound dated also? It's like the wigs in yeah. Camelot. I think, yeah. I think there really, there <laughs> yeah, really isn't... There really, when it comes to dancing in a musical and the dance-arranger and your job with them or the job that the two of you take on together, there isn't, there isn't one way to do it. There's any way to approach it, but... I think the most important thing, as Kathleen said, is to first figure out what is the story that you want to tell with the piece of dance, if you're lucky enough today to have a piece of dance in a new musical, because it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mars, would you like to jump in? Just in service, and you are in service of certainly the choreographer, but also the composer. You're just lifting up their music and stretching it and moving it all around, however... At what point does the the composer, is he involved from the get-go on those early conversations? Not if they're dead. It it depends. I mean, you know, I'm actually putting a little new piece of dance, maybe, into Love Never Dies in London at this moment. And Mark came in and helped me on it. And Andrew, because he's Andrew and he's over there doing everything he's doing over there, he just said, you know, just do whatever you want to do. And then I'll, and, and probably everything we did, every single note will be changed and written by Andrew. But I was able to sketch out the story that I wanted to tell using actually his melodies. Mm-hmm. And then he was able to watch it and get the idea. And now he's composing something for that. So that was the starting point for mm-hmm. this. Can I ask you again, um, just do you, I know some choreographers like to have some music there that they can then create too. Others have told me that they have said to the dance arranger, I want 32 bars of 2-4 and then I need a 10-8 count in here and blah 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 and it should last four minutes. How specific do you get? (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that's very specific. It comes from different ways. Like a lot of times, let's say like when we were creating Too Darn Hot and Kiss Me Kate, we knew that we wanted it to sort of a, be a, a, a can-you-top-this kind of number, you know, that it feels sort of improvisational, actors hanging out, out in an alley at intermission, and the way actors do, you know, and dancers do, they get up and start showing each other steps, and somebody says, ooh, what if I try this, what if I try this? So that we knew it would be a combination of different sections, some of which are interrupted, some of which somebody takes over, sometimes somebody's pulled into it, you know, and made to sort of put on, you know, put on stage, like, oh, let's see what you got. And so from that, we knew, you know, David would play with variations. And sometimes he would come in with just an idea of, of a variation on, you know, taking this, this melody and saying, oh, well, that's great. We could use that for the boy section. 
Or we could use that for that trio we want to do. Or we could use that for the, you know, what we think is going to be those two girls. You know, so once you sort of start to figure out the beats of the, of the dance, then you sort of figure, you know, he may sort of write something specifically for that section, or maybe there's something that he sort of composed that we feel like, oh, that will work for that section. So it's a matter of, and the other part of it, which is just astonishing to me, is the way arrangers, you know, the, the manipulation of keys and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, sort of keep it fresh so that they keep, so that the ear, you know, it's not all just one key. And you're also thinking and about the orchestrations yeah. that so you're, you're thinking, writing. Well, we want this section to trumpets. have a clarinet right. solo, right. but for the clarinet to be at you know, at it, 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 its best part, right. it needs to be in this key. How am I going to get to that key? Mm-hmm. And orchestrators and then, are very happy when you know, they have smart right. dance arrangers right. that have already can, done that can work. get you there. <laughs> yeah. um, and then also, if it's a song that's coming, that's going to have a vocal back at the end of it, you know, so many times you've sort of, you've, you've modulated and yeah. changed keys, and it's like, okay, now how are we going to get back to that key that's good for the vocalist without feeling like up. it's dropping? Because mm-hmm. we've gone up, 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 and so they've got to... It's, it, there's a math involved, which, uh, you know, is, it's no surprise to me that a lot of dance arrangers and orchestrators are also, you know, good at science. I mean, David was a biochemistry yeah. major at Harvard. No you chemistry, know. just the bio. Just the bio. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just the bio part. And there's no, you know, that sort of, there's something about that sort of scientific mathematician kind of brain in order to put those things together. But to answer your question, I think we're probably talking to two more hands-on choreographers than there are some that will say, go ahead, write something. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay. <laughs> when, when, and when, you kind of take a leap and then see what happens. Yeah. When I was doing um, uh, Fulmonte, I was working with uh, Zane Mark, who's wonderful, and has done dance arrangements for me on a few things. And Zane and uh, Dean... The drummer, uh, I just said, Dean Chernow, I said, this is a this is a guy's playing, uh, doing basketball exercises. And quite literally, I choreographed the number in about 20 minutes. Wow. Because I, I, the story was so clear mm-hmm. to me what I was going to do, and because I played basketball my entire life, I knew what I wanted to do with the number. So I said, Dean, play the drums, and Zane, watch. And I did the entire thing pretty much to to drums, wow. and um, and I did all the drills, and then and then we started to play play around with how we would musicalize that. And there's a point where they're uh, bouncing the ball and passing it back and forth to each other, and I said that should sound like sing sing, you know. And that was how Zane started to come up with that whole section. But all of the chunks were pretty much for me rhythmically found out first mm-hmm. and then Zane went away with that rhythm chart and started to Good. manipulate the music and to I support it. I think that chorus line there was a drummer Bobby, well, Michael, Bobby Thomas. Mike yeah Bobby Bobby Thomas yeah. was Michael Bennett's right and left hand. When I worked for a year on a show called Scandal, which was Michael's last show and Bobby was there every morning at 10 o'clock in the morning. And Michael, I remember one specific uh, uh, day, Jimmy Webb had not written the opening number yet. And Michael was really ready to choreograph the opening number. He knew what the story was. He knew what he wanted to do. And so we all went into the room. I was associate Tam, Jody Mocha, Danny Herman. We were three associates, Tam. We went into the room, and in the process of four or five days... We created the number with Bobby, with uh, Bobby Thomas playing the drums, and a Whitney Houston track of like "I Want to Dance with Somebody" or something. <laughs> Quite literally, we did the whole opening number. No lyrics or anything, but all the story, all the dancing was all there. He grabs Jimmy, brings Jimmy into the room, sits him down in the chair, and says, "Here's the opening number. Watch it." <laughs> they watched it. Now he said, "Now go write me the song." And he left the room, and he came back three days later, and he had written a song to fit the number of bars of the opening number that we had created. And it was, and it was great. So there isn't just one way to do it. There's many ways to do it, and you can inspire someone to write something. I heard a similar story from Donald Sadler about uh, Wonderful Town, where Bernstein wanted to write his own dance music, didn't have time to write a dance for the song Swing, 
So he told, told Donald, go ahead, you know what, it's going to be an A minor, and it's going to be this tempo. I don't know what the song is, I don't know what the dance is, but go ahead and choreograph something. Mm-hmm. Um, so Donald did a, did a whole dance routine, basically with, I don't, know, don't even know if he had a drummer, probably. Um, and then uh, Lenny came in, watched it once, and went, okay, got it. Went away and wrote the dance, dance out based on that. Yeah. Because that was very usual that he, a composer who wrote his own dance yeah. music, you know, that's... Cy Coleman did. Actually, oh, yeah. a lot of composers, though, told me they started as dance arrangers. Well, John, John Kander was, John yeah. Kander. Um, John Kander. I think Sheldon Harnett mentioned to me one time that he'd started writing... Really? Wow. I think Didn't so. Didn't Julie Stein make some dance arrangements for something or somebody? It's possible. Famous ones. Uh, Mark Shaman Mark Shaman wrote Mark Shaman, yeah. every note of... Hairspray dance arrangement and has written mm. every note of Catch Me If You Can dance arrangement so wow. far. And there's a lot more dance for dance sake in Catch Me than there was in Hairspray. Hairspray was pretty much always singing when we were dancing. Well, a lot of it's a matter of time, I think. It's about, you know, because a lot of it for us is just the time spent in a room with a piano, with maybe with, with drums, maybe with, you know, other people, just sort of working out what the possibilities are which is usually a composer doesn't have that time if they're alive and working, and that's the... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How much do you, I mean, have you experienced, let's say, a composer? The dance arrangement is now done. Mm-hmm. Not finalized, perhaps, but at least there's something there. Does the composer ever come in and say, change this section, or I want... Marvin Hamlish would um, take uh, my dance music and interpolate his melody longer lines over the, the number of music counts. that I had written. And I went, oh, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but that's another one. Marvin wrote dance music, too. So. When I was doing Lacage, Jerry uh, Herman, L- David Crane had done the dance arrangements with me, and we worked, we worked for four weeks, I think, and Jerry never, ever came to see anything until we were done. And then he came into the room, and he had four notes. and uh, But they were mostly about where the melody was or where the dance arrangement could actually bring the melody back to the ear and still help tell the story. So you, so you wouldn't lose the composer's melody. The sooner you learn, learn that as a dancer and you're the better off. Melody, yeah. melody, melody, melody. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and in reference to Love Never Dies, uh, my experience, one experience with Andrew Lloyd Webber was on the London Abita, where right. it was almost exactly what Jerry was saying, which is that I mapped something out, and then he came in and kept all the same beats. But, you know, it didn't change, I mean, change maybe 10 or 15% of it, but it was a you know very conscious, I want to, I want this to do this, and I want this to do this, and it was it was collaborative, um, but it was also about just wanting to make sure that that w- he had the, the final say. And that's that's absolutely his right. Yeah. You know, and I was just thinking in the early days when Trudy Whitman was writing mm-hmm. all the dance arrangements, there, Rogers' melody, and then maybe it'll change. Not always, but yes. But, <laughs> but very often, yeah. I mean, it's just clearly okay, this is the song, here's the arrangement, and it's played in different keys, perhaps, or different tempos. And it, it does, it stretches somewhat, but not like today. It just seems today mm. dance arrangers have... I don't know if that's necessarily true. The Carousel, Carousel Waltz, Waltz is, is, a, is a great example of something created from whole cloth. That's true. Or the, like, Peter Howard's opening of Carnival, um, created pretty much from whole cloth. Uh, you know, using themes here and there, but very much more so than sort of just a... I mean, I think the idea of a, like a state the theme and dance to it probably started changing around the time of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I don't know that for sure. You guys might might know more, but um, you know, good examples like going back to uh, Too Darn Hot. The original Too Darn Hot really was a the dance arrangement. It was probably you know Robert Russell Bennett was the orchestrator. I think they just said, okay, you know, Russ do. Four choruses of, of Too Darn Hot. Mm-hmm. Right. And, that, and whatever way you want to do it. Were, yeah. And that's what I was yeah. thinking mm-hmm. of that in the old days. That's what they did. Well, because now they really are compositions. Oh, that, yeah. That yeah, definitely. relate, obviously, to the original. And you can have a credit dance music by or dance music arranger by, and a composer will say, mm, arranger will be in your title. Other composers will say, no, you can have dance music. Mm-hmm. Stick point. I mean, one of the things that's especially in this day and age when a lot more things are either 
catalog shows or revivals is that so much of the job is not just about the dances, but also about all the incidental music and all of the sort of... Interstitial. The interstitial material. <laughs> the gazintas and gazautas. Um, Transitions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, uh, yeah I, um, it used to be, you know, I mean, having done looked at sort of original scores from a lot of the shows that we've done at Encores, you know, one of the first things that the orchestrator would do would be take every song that the composer wrote and just wrote an instrumental chorus of that song. Utilities. Mm-hmm. A utility. So that's why when you look in some of those original scores, it says such and such utility, such and such utility. That's like the first thing they orchestrated. And that music would turn into transition music or bow music or... Or sometimes or the overture. overture. Yeah, you say, <laughs> Depending okay. on if they ran out yeah. of time or not. Sadly. And, yeah. you know, so they would have these sort of pieces. And I think that, that again, with the sort of sophistication of technology and the way shows move now... Yeah. That you know that we have all these sort of complica- more complicated transitions or transitions where stories being told as opposed to sort of just you let's know, pause now for the scenery, yeah. right? And so so that makes it, and especially because of the way we can time things with automation, and you say we want ba 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 ba, and on the last note lights up and we're in the scene. So then you know a lot of times dance arrangers are not just doing you know the dance breaks in the songs, but they're really sort of Giving it's like more like scoring a movie in some ways, in many ways mm-hmm. yeah. you know, in terms of, of uh, giving you a sort of you know, and and, and is there going to be underscoring in under the scene? How, how are we going to how are we going to start the song? Is it going to start you know with a bell tone, or is it going to are we going to have music that leads four or five lines before the song? And will dance arrangers very often do the underscoring? Yeah. Well, the, the challenge is that there's there's not really a title. That exists or a way to define that. You know, sometimes it's the music director, sometimes it's that weird word music supervisor, but nobody really knows what that means. <laughs> Somebody, you know, sometimes it's a dance arranger, sometimes it's, you know, the, sometimes there's a vocal arranger, sometimes. Uh, sometimes the pianist that's sitting there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, those kind of things, you know, depending on each show is different, and it, de- and it really depends on whether the, the composer is actively engaged and, and involved or dead or <laughs> you know or not really that or involved. in the other room writing another song right yeah there's right. And it's not it's it's really not unlike the director choreographer relationship sometimes which is that depending on on who you know sometimes with the with the direct sometimes with the director the director the choreographer stages everything that involves music sometimes the director will stage ballads and things like that and but the choreographer will stage all the dance numbers and the up tempo numbers sometimes there's a director who actually will stage an up tempo number if it's a solo or a duet and the choreographer is only doing it so just that in that way that it sort of is different for every show i think you're right mm-hmm. it depends on the composer how active they are it depends on you know what the team of like when we did Pajama Game together, David was our musical supervisor. That title, whatever that, whatever that is, <laughs> and the dance arranger. I was going to ask you what that was. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Yeah. It, means he, no. it means he did everything but conduct the show, basically. But that's not necessarily that what musical supervisor means. Right. Like if you see that credit, it can mean anything from, you know, the Checking guy in once in che- a while. or the guy who like had the idea in England a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. um, who still gets that credit. To you know the person who's really doing everything involved in the show, and there's no consistency there. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. But a lot of it too depends on, you know, it's like when we did Kiss Me Kate, when Kathleen was the choreographer and, and Michael Blakemore was the director. Basically, we kind of handled the music on anything that involved movement at all, which basically was not just the dances, but all the transitions, all of the musical staging numbers. I think the only thing, only music in there that I didn't. In, get involved in some way was probably uh, you know like three of the ballads like so in love and yeah. so in, yeah, yeah. Um, but everything else involved movement in some form so it was just everything was being being just fussed with yeah um, um, how much does a director or, or let me phrase it differently when does a director get involved in the act of creating the dance arrangement if at all I mean, hopefully you've all had conversations about where where the dance is going to be in a show and how, you know, what and what it's going to be about. I mean, hopefully part of all of your pre-production and dealing with the director, dealing with the writers, dealing with the designers, you know, you sort of say, this, I want to, I have an idea to open up this number in this way. Um, you know, and so hopefully all those conversations have happened about what you think, you know, the sort of... Uh, 
and, and I think you need to sort of pitch it to the director. You need to sort of, whether you sort of storyboard it and say, this is what I think happens in this. And and then if you're given the green light, then you just sort of go ahead and, and, and do it. And then some directors come in and look at it and make edits with the choreographers. Right. And but actually actually suggesting the dance arrangement, I, I think that's rare. I think, I think most directors... Well, By the, the time it gets to that point, have a, a relationship with their choreographer enough that they trust them to take the lead with the dance arranger or whoever mm-hmm. to actually do the work. Then they actually comment on it. But you know, even Jack and I—I I mean, we are incredibly close, and our collaboration mm-hmm. has been like a hand in a glove. But and Jack could get up and do the dances himself. I mean, <laughs> and, and he probably will. Yeah, he does. Sometimes he's in my pre-production crew. <laughs> but uh, but. He pretty much lets me do what I got to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. When I was doing a show, my first Broadway show, I will tell you, it was Funny Girl, and we were rehearsing with Carol Haney. Fabulous overture. Oh, it is. But we were rehearsing, we were in Philadelphia, and you know how one people, some group, you know, the large group is in the ballroom, and Carol Haney had us dancers out in the hallway outside the ballroom. And Julie Stein actually came, he's watching us, and he said, Carol, why don't you do this? And Julie Stein sort of demonstrating the step. <laughs> and we were all kind of like aghast. I said, I can't believe he's doing that to Carol Haney. And he was walking backwards, showing us this march step that he thought, and the doors of the elevator opened, oh, and nobody yeah. said a word. He backed up into the elevator, doing this step he was showing us, and the doors closed. <laughs> <laughs> and he went down, and he never said a word after that. But I thought that was extreme. It was my first show, and I thought, is that what happens when you're creating, you know, dad's numbers? Anything. Sometimes. And, well, in a way, you sort of feel like the best idea in the room should win, yeah. you know, wherever, yep. wherever, wherever it comes from, you know, that uh, there comes from an actor or a dancer or, you know, from somewhere else, you know. But, um, but that's, that's pretty <laughs> Now, what happens if, uh, let's say, during the course of the show, a new number gets written and you have to do a dance arrangement and you're already in rehearsals? Is the process the same or is there a shorthand that you have to go to? You stay late at night. Well, yeah, you, stay, you, you <laughs> get you there an hour early. You stay after school. You keep working. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes you're doing it, you know, on the day off. You're just, you just, usually with the, if the show is, if you're performing the show, mm-hmm. which sure has happened to all of us, you know, they're doing one routine at night, you're working on a new routine during the day, you're teaching the kids in the afternoon, they're performing the old routine at night, you're rehearsing the new routine during the day yeah. until it's ready to go in. You're just make sure it, you rehearse the costumes. old routines, the last yeah. thing right. yeah, before you know. Right. Yeah. Run, the, run what you're doing that night yeah. at the end of yeah. rehearsal. Yeah. Just to right. make sure everybody knows. Yeah. I've, as a performer, I was always astounded at how quickly it seemed to us, dancers in the show, how quickly those arrangements got written. Because sometimes. And how quickly you know, the dancers learn them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very often, though, we would learn it that afternoon, and it was performed that night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just... And sometimes you do it with a trio right, and don't have an yeah. orchestration. Yeah, right, and drums until you get the orchestration. Right. That is the one challenge, is you have to go from arranger awesome. to orchestrator to, to copyist, copyist to band to rehearse. And if they're not there, you have to wait a day. Yeah. 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 But then, if it's a big number, you have to tech it too. So, yeah, and tech it. Yeah. But this, in this day and age, with you know everything can be sent fast. digitally, it's pretty fast, or it can be fast. Yeah, yeah. you don't just have Matilda Pincus. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know Matilda Pincus was like the Broadway copyist, right. and I mean she did it. All she had a special tone by hand, all by hand, and a lot of those original scores, she it was her. Her, her handwriting on, right. on the music stands. I mean, now, of course, it's all, you know, computerized. But. but that was still, a lot of stuff was still being done by hand in the early 90s. I would say it wasn't until, like, the late 90s that everything became almost exclusively computer copy. Yeah. But when you think about it, all the shows in the 40s, 50s, 60s, even 70s, I think, were all copied by hand. I'm sure. And all of the orchestra parts. I mean, it's just astounding how they got been done when you were on the road. More more people showed up at the hotel. Yeah. Well, there was still a rule on the union books in the early 90s that that dated back to the time when the Xerox machine was invented because that actually put copyists out of work. 
So if you did a show where, like, the violin, there were more than one violin part, which would be exactly the same part, but you could actually Xerox it, you got charged more for copying that part than because you were losing money because you weren't copying two copies of it. Does that make sense? But that finally, that rule went away. But, it's a, it really yeah. is amazing that when, just of how things evolved and just the fact that they were able to do what they did back then. But they also had, you know, like the Joseph Harms Company sort of had, which was the major music publisher through the 20s, 30s, 40s. They had a whole stable of orchestrators and copyists that worked just for them. So if a show needed something fast, usually the head orchestrator, um, and I don't know if this happened with arrangers so much, but would, you know, sort of say to the person across the way, you know, Robert Russell Bennett said to Don Walker, here, you go do this chart. Mm-hmm. Because I don't have time, and it would just, you know, they had their own copyists, and, and everything would happen very quickly that way. These yeah. days, a lot of times the orchestrator on record is not the only person who contributed to that show. I would say rarely, right? It's, yeah, you know, yeah. in the ghost orchestrator. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, that's another thing is is that the transition from dance arranger to orchestrator. And, you know, I mean, David's charts are sort of so specific. I mean, he could practically orchestrate them well, himself. Because you already yeah. know, you already hear in your head, you know, who's who's got the melody, what instrument, you know, where you know, you, you already know what the this, this specifics are in a lot of ways. I mean, I feel very strongly, and I know Mark does too, that you kind of have to know what could play something, and which is why it's also important, even before you start arranging, to know what what is the orchestra, what is the, right. the sound the of the show, mm. what, what do you have to work with, because you have to write with a, a specific Intention. knowledge of what the end result could be, otherwise you know, you can't write something which is a fantastic piano something. And we have guitars. And we have guitars, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, or write something that's really high and, and fast for, you know, for the wrong instrument. Or expect you know to to know like what can play something and then so in my mind, I'm thinking, how would I orchestrate it? Even though I don't want to orchestrate it, no, but yeah, <laughs> because I like to be around people. I don't like to be in a little little room with the light shining down. Um, but but that's you know you kind of have to hear what the end result could be, and then you hand it to the orchestrator, and and you know most of the time. They're pretty quick and, and smart about seeing. Oh, I see what you did here, and this, you know, this is in trombone section range. This is clearly what this is, and they'll make other choices, or they'll simplify, or or complicate, or whatever. But um, but I think it's important to, to know what you think the final result could be. And actually, I just put stuff on it to strings, yeah. horns, clarinet. I, I you just just write the English on it. So that you're very, if you're very specific, what you want, and it's very appreciated. Yeah, because a lot of times what will happen is that once you sort of feel something's ready to pass off to the orchestrator, they'll come to rehearsal, you know, sit next to David, <coughs> to Mark, and you know, to the choreographer, watch the number of a couple of times, you, you know, hope. ask que- you know, hopefully, hopefully ask yeah. a couple of questions, you know. But it's hard because it, as the time goes on, like they, they, David said, they're like medieval monks doing an illuminated manuscript off in a tower somewhere. <laughs> and so sometimes you're handing them off things that they may not have And they don't seen. have the privilege mm-hmm. of videotaping because right. of equity and all. Well, sometimes they do now. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of special dispensation. I think orchestrators, yeah. orchestrators actually now can, can in rehearsal. Can rehearse, yeah. take rehearsal. So they can yeah. go home mm-hmm. and kind of watch it. I think the same with designers, too. Yeah. Yeah. If it's asked ahead of time or something. Right. You have to get permission. Yeah. Because you also have to remember that, like, as the arranger, we're in the room with you guys during the whole process. So we know what we've watched it in development. We know kind of where it started, where it's headed. The orchestrator only sees essentially the final product. So the more information we can give the orchestrator in terms of intentions or what's, you know, what's important in a, in a dance arrangement, what to what goes with what and why, um, it's always appreciated. And, I mean, I sometimes try to describe dance arranging. It can, it can be a little bit like lighting design in the sense of, you know, you can, you can stage the most beautiful picture on stage, but the lighting designer is going to help the audience know where to look. Um, and so that's part of our job as a dance arranger is musically to help the audience hear where to look. Mm-hmm. 
um, and to tell, you know, to say, like, if you put, uh, you know, if you put a cymbal crash on every single kick or punch and there's, you know, a kick every, every eighth note, then you don't see any of it because none of it means anything. So it's about really trying to literally focus the music onto what's important. And one of the things I love about what David does is that he doesn't just, you know, a lot of times uh, the solution is, oh, we'll just give that to the drums to give it, you know, to make mm-hmm. that sort of give that accent. And what I love is that he sort of will work hard to make sure that the accent is in the music and in the melody, mm-hmm. you know, matching. Where, where was that again? You just did that, you know, if I'm showing him something. He's like, do that again because you did that flick. Was that Where was that flick that you did? I want to put something on that that's not just yeah. adding a, you know, a little symbol or a splash in later. And sometimes yeah. I will say, you know, if you just do it here instead of here, <laughs> right. it'd be better. <laughs> yeah. And and sometimes it moves and sometimes it doesn't, you know. <laughs> um, but that's part of the, you know, the fun of the collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know what? It also, when you hear those dance arrangements, mm-hmm. even without seeing the choreography, they're very exciting. And it also tells future choreographers who may use that arrangement to say, oh, I'm going to put a kick in here because there's... You know, it's just written into the arrangement. Bob Fosse's arrangements, to me, were always so much fun to choreograph to because they were so specific. And it, to me, the music told me what to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. with that. Well, that's the goal is that you can listen to it and it exists as a piece of music and tells, still tells you the story or at least evokes some kind of story. Leads you. Leads you. But I also will say that, I mean, I'm going to tell on Mark Hummel now, because I, when I moved to the city, my, I, my first job in the city was being a rehearsal pianist at Radio City, and Mark was a dance arranger. Um, and I was intrigued by what, what means this thing, dance arranging. <laughs> um, and, and he very nicely let me take him to dinner and, like, and pick his brain. And I, I brought along you know, a dance arrangement I'd done in college. And, and he, was, he was very kind about it. He said, but I can't, I can't really tell you if it's good or not, because... I don't know what they're doing. Um, and that I thought that was a very, I mean, that was an incredibly smart and helpful thing to say, which is that it can't, even though it can exist as a piece of music, you can't really say what it means or what it's like unless you see, unless it's part of that whole process. Mm-hmm. In the same way that I, I'm sure you, you know, can you look at a piece of choreography without underneath, anything underneath and really know what it means? You know, probably not. Um, you know, I think even, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, doing basketball with drums, that these, mm-hmm. the drums helped shape that. Oh, I think, sure they did. Mm-hmm. You know, and Fosse famously did, for example, Coffee Break overnight with a, just with a drummer in a room, mm-hmm. and then retrofitted, music was retrofitted to that dance. But it's still, I mean, even though the drums don't have melody, they still obviously help enormously. It's basically like building the bones before you put on the yeah. muscle and the skin. But but it, in in a, in that instance, it was right because it's all based on athleticism. Mm-hmm. So you know, it really. I think it sort of depends on what it is you're trying to tell. I mean, if you go to Radio City and you listen to some of those numbers that are still there and completely dance arranged, mm-hmm. they're like so basically brilliant at the way they build to a climax, because it's like. That's what its job is a lot of times, mm-hmm. to build to that famous climax. And in Lacage, I had that with David. David was great at building to that Broadway climax, <laughs> you know, and that sort of depends on what the, what the show requires. So, Yeah, a, a great dance arrangement sort of has, has kind of some, like, inevitability to it. But somehow you land on something and you mm-hmm. kind of go, ah, you know, whether it's, that, whether it's that big pullback or whether it's that, you know... Mm-hmm. Or you finally land back yeah. on the melody, you know, when you finally sort of get to, you know, like you said, there's some sort of satisfying thing, and how you get there and how you build to it, or, or how you button The it. orgasm moment. That's <laughs> 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 a swear word. We call it no. <laughs> yeah, that's, and right, and also then how you, you know, how you, um, how you button a number. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times we talk about, like, do you want it to boom like that, or does it boom, or does it, you know, how does it, how do you land that so that people, you know, have that that sense of, of satisfaction. Yeah. And those are all the important questions that you don't necessarily know going in, but you want to address those eventually. You know, is it, are we telling the right story? Are we achieving what we want to achieve? Are we, you know, is the audience following it? Are they, you know, is the, is the button doing its job? Is the build doing its job? And that's something you sometimes don't even know until you start 
do putting in front of an audience. Yeah. Do the performers ever get involved in the creation, make suggestions, or is it usually done before the performers get involved? Depends. I think it depends if you're working yeah. with someone as soloist, or if you're working with a chorus of folks. And also depends on if you're working with somebody who's been in the room with you on eight projects, or somebody who's with mm-hmm. you for the first time. You know, sure. and you know what your what your yeah. um, relationship is with the dancer or the performer. And who you have with you in pre-production. Yeah. You know, if you have an assistant and dance captain and maybe a couple of dancers with you, and there's nothing better, if, especially if they're people that you've worked with and you trust, and you sort of figure something out and. If you look around the room and you see heads mm-hmm. nodding, like yeah, 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 that, yeah. that sounds good. That sounds that, that and, and also the, if it'd be fun to do, you know, you get the mm-hmm. feeling that they sure. want to do it. But the, I mean, the other thing that happens is that is that you you know you, you write a thing that's basically a sort of composition, and then whether it's in rehearsal or even in previews, decide that it has to be expanded or or shortened, and that's a real challenge because all of a mm-hmm. sudden you've had you know this v- careful thing that's been built so carefully. You say, you know that. That's that section in the middle, that trio. We're going to lose that trio, and then these guys have this impossible job of figuring out, you know, they key wise and all those other things, and instrument, and oh, now the reed doesn't have time to put down this reed and pick up that reed for that other section. So how are we going to bridge the gap if we make that cut? And that that becomes, um, you know, a, a real technique in and of itself. Yeah. You know how to how to and still make it sound like a. Full composition. It was meant to that be it wasn't. Yeah. That it's not cut and pasted together. Do you do puzzles? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just. Like I, I sometimes puzzle. like you know, say it's a, a lot of it for me is like I've got all these puzzle pieces and there is a way to put them together, but you also have to find a way. Okay, like if you pull this piece out, you know, can you still make a nice puzzle? Um, and it has challenges, and you know, sometimes it's not a perfect fit, and it does, but. Yeah, but that's but it's fascinating. Challenge. I write in such a way that it's easy to take stuff out. I, I'm just very happy that it works out that way because it's true. You get edited and it needs to be shorter for whatever reason. And um, I've been lucky. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you always have to keep in mind... You're maybe in the back of your mind. Yeah, in the back of your mind, you're going, okay, <laughs> if I do this, and okay, then this section maybe needs to be shorter, then this is what can be pulled out. Or, um. You know what? I'd kind of like to give everybody a chance to ask questions. I was going to say, we unfortunately have to let these guys go in about 10 minutes. They all take 7 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> okay, open that's it up. there. Yeah. Great. Um, I, I have a question about revivals. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about parameters that we have when you're doing a revival, you want to change the arrangement. So, in pajama game, did Todd Hayes say, you have carte blanche, do whatever you want, you want to change anything? Were there voices that were coming from the publishers that said no? Could just talk a little bit about that? It sometimes well, is a state. Yeah, yeah it, dep- it really, it all yeah. depends on, there are certain, like if, in the case of pajama game, half of the composing, the writing team, Richard Adler, is still alive. Um, and I've, I have a relationship with him going back to the Damn Yankees revival. So he was around, but not particularly interested in the... He didn't. He cared about certain things, didn't care about the dance. Um, there are some estates, the Bernstein estate, the Vile estate, that will not let you change a note, period, the end, no Gypsy. discussion. Mm-hmm. Gypsy's the same. You had to use what was there on the town. Absolutely what was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then certain, I'm trying to think, most of the other estates are pretty, I mean, they'll, they'll keep an eye on it. Rogers and Hammerstein keeps it just, you know, because they have Bruce Pomahack, who's their sort of full-time music guy, who's also been a dance arranger and a music director and an orchestrator, um, is very, very aware, not necessarily actively involved in the process, but will come and, and listen. And, and um, I mean, I remember... I completely redid uh, Flower Drum Song, and Mary Rogers, for example, came to the, the orchestra rehearsal, and she went, I just have one issue. said, the, this chord on this, in this bar in this song should be a dominant seventh, not a minor seventh. And I went, okay. okay. I said, but in the printed score, it's a minor seventh. And she said, oh, well, that's wrong. So, so we change yeah. it to a dominant seventh, and that was, you know. I also think, of course, what happens is that a lot of uh, 
uh, revivals, you, you're, you're not given as big an orchestra as the original production had, so that you naturally have to um, reorchestrate mm -hmm. the whole show. Because the original orchestra might have been thirty or thirty-two pieces, and now you know you fight to get those kazoo and a harmonica. And yeah. so you know, so it all has to be reorchestrated anyway. A lot of times, which means you're readdressing. Even if you're planning on using the original arrangements, um, you have they have to still be uh, kind of rethought. And sometimes it's not wise to use the original arrangements if you don't have a ten-piece string right. section. You can't do something which is reliant on a big yeah. string section. And the other thing is that what's interesting, like a lot of times, you know, several times we've worked on shows that were contemporary at the time they were done and then are now being revived as a period piece, something like Jama Game or Kiss Me Kate. And so what's fun about that is that we sort of, you know, like the pajama game, we say we can make it kind of even more sound, make it sound like people think the 50s sounded like or remember what it sounded like. Because it could be when Pajama Game was written, they were sort of just a sort of, Standard Broadway sound, and and they're not necessarily you know those it was it worked the other way the Broadway songs became the standards on the radio. Now it's like okay how can we make it feel like we've transported you back to the fifties? What do, what do people what do, what do people think the fifties sounds like <laughs> that we can kind of you know put into the show in that way? And that will be different in fifty years. <laughs> yeah. Staying with the pajama game, that wonderful moment where Harry Connick Jr. came out on the piano, was was that him improvising, or was that noted, or how did did he collaborate with you? Did you collaborate with him? What what happened with that is that it was a conversation I had with him before we even started rehearsal. Actually, when he was deciding whether to do the show, and he had never, you know, he'd never he, in his concerts he said, you know, he improvises all the time, and he said he was nervous about doing eight shows a week. And that's when I thought, well, if I can get him, if I can have a section where he Im improvises and can keep the show fresh for him. So we knew that somehow <laughs> in Hernando's Hideaway we were going to get him to a piano. We had to sort of figure out an organic way to get there. And then we sort of, we had already had that whole arrangement done before we started rehearsals. And it was basically giving him a certain number of bars and a certain amount well, we, of chorus. Well, we sort of, of said, here's... here's the key that we're going to end up in, and I, I, don't remember, I don't remember if we said it's going to be an F, or if he said, oh, I'd love to do F, and we, I went, okay. Um, and just said, okay, here's how it's getting into it, and then you can do whatever you want for, I don't even know his number of bars, so much as just about, you know, 45 seconds. And it was like uh, or a chorus, and then, a yeah. Cor yeah, and then knowing that at some point we're going to start bringing the orchestra back in, so this is where we're going to, you know, start bringing it back in, and you have so you're improvising with the orchestra slowly coming back in within this framework. But, but he did have a section where it was completely free and it was completely different every night. And side note, he is one of the only people I've ever met in my life who never played a wrong note. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever play wrong notes? I do all the time. <laughs> but he never, in putting his hands on the piano, never, ever played a wrong note. And actually got upset at me for asking him if he ever played. Well. <laughs> 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 so. Could you talk about the way your process changes when dealing with revivals versus new work? If it changes, you really well, new work is new work is new work. It, 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 it's the gambit. You can do whatever you want. Uh, most of the time with revivals, you're dealing with estates. And that's the first thing that will tell you whether you're allowed to go free or if you have to stick to what was pre previously written. Sondheim is pretty much, he'll let you do whatever you want. He's open to anything. Those big dance shows, Sondheim. Well, Follies. <laughs> Follies, was, Follies was huge. We both did Follies, yeah. but I, I did whatever I wanted. I, I did Albany underneath yeah, you, did yeah. Lucy and Jesse. I mean, he, he is open, open to anything you want. And, and I did Follies twice with him. In London, same thing. I'm on stage as associate to Bob Avian, and he's sitting in the second row, and Bob tells me to go up on stage and fix something, and I'm up there, and, you know, there's, I, I can fix it in four eights. I don't need 16 eights. And he said, and from the second row, Jerry, cut it if you want to. Cut it. Like, like that. That doesn't happen. <laughs> that, yeah. for, with, well, you know, that doesn't happen that often. But then, you know, Mark uh, Shaman, who... Hairspray and Catch Me If You Can, new sh new shows. We'll we'll do a whole new number the next day. We'll we'll do the number. 
mm-hmm. start over until we find it. If if you know if we, if it's not right, we'll start over. But also in a new show, I mean, in a revival, most of the time, the, you're you're putting dance where dance already existed most of the time. Yes. Even if you're totally changing what it is, and in a new musical, you're deciding where the dance is going to be. You and know, the thing that Kathleen said why. most importantly is have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have the conversation as soon as possible. If you're if you're working on something that's brand new and you have an idea where dance might help tell the story, tell everyone as soon as possible. Because you don't want to be in the third week of rehearsal and say, well, I was thinking maybe we could do a little dance here because there's no costumes, there's no set, there's no orchestration, there's no pre-production time to make it better. If you've got the idea, honey, spit it out. You've got to talk with your collaborators. You have to talk because in the end, it will save you. It will gain you the opportunity to be your very best because you will have time on your side. Because I think the challenge of the way a lot of musicals are created this day, these days, which is you know reading after reading after reading, that unless there's you know a choreographer or a director choreographer in on the ground floor, it's going to be hard to get dance in there later. Yes. Because the story's already been told, you know, through 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 book and through music and through lyrics, and so you know if you don't from the get go have a principal character or two who dances. Mm-hmm. If you don't, from the get-go, have a choreographer in there saying, "I think this said this part of the story." You don't need, you know, you don't need you don't need a scene to tell this part of the story. We can tell this part of the story through dance. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happens sometimes. Is that you know, like you said, if nine times it out, of comes 10, out of ten, it's it, done it's, because it was all in the reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <coughs> yeah. But the one big open area is a lot of these transitions now, we're talking about revivals, where you can add movement and dance where there was nothing before, or at least use staging to help tell a story um, in the way that a transition works, which is a new place. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Go ahead. Well, I noticed from the flyer that you directed and choreographed uh, once upon a mattress. Yeah, yeah. Did you get, did you, were uh, able to uh, play around with the original arrangements for that when you did it? Yeah, we did. We were able to, yeah, we were able to do sort of new arrangements. Uh And, you know, and that's also tricky because you're trying to compress what was, you know, a two-hour, 45-minute show into, you know, 90 minutes television time. So it's, you know, so you're challenged about how how much you can can do. But that's also fun because... uh, you get to, you know, for when you work on film, and Davis worked on film too, you, and, and Jerry's done a lot of film, you, you get that big orchestra sound, oh. you know, which is like fantastic. When you go in and it's like 60 pieces <laughs> or something, you know, look at the, the strings alone are twice the size of a regular Broadway orchestra. That's kind of really fun. Yes? Go ahead. What about being able to access updated arrangements. Like you said, if you put the dance arrangements on Revival, has a more contemporary sound, now we want to do it in West Shimong someplace. We get the book from TMI or Tannis Whitmark, right. and we want to access the Kiss BK dance arrangements. Is that even a possibility? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something show that we show contract show. with you directly? or No, it has to, you to go through the house. through the publishing house, yeah. but sometimes they, ha- they have them. Some of them do, some of them don't. Um, I mean, I get a request every six months or so for like the updated forum dance arrangements but they've never been published um, and the, the producers usually have to call us and yeah. then I've been asked for the guys and dolls sometimes I know the, they'll release the revived revised version and if you want to do the originals they won't you can't even get them so really it's up to I guess TMI or Rogers and Hammerstein whichever one yeah. They are pushing. That's what you get. Rodgers and Hammerstein is excellent about keeping everything in their catalog, revised versions as well as the original. A lot of the other. Either. I guess I believe so. Um, MTI in French and uh, Tams are. It's a. It depends on the show, because they have no. If if the original title is selling just fine, they have no incentive to spend the money to update all the parts and everything like that. So I would say, if you're interested in doing the updated version of something, let them know. Let them, let them know you wish they had it, and eventually they'll maybe put it out there. But 
Okay, one last question. Okay, go ahead. Um, could you talk about transitions for a moment and how you reconcile the technical requirements with the storytelling requirements and just basically what's the best way to handle a transition? Well, I think it, it sort of depends on... I, I, my, the way I work with transitions is always based on how, how quickly can I... How can I keep the story being told through the transition? That's, that's the answer to it. And my, my feeling is always to deal with the set designer first because usually it's the set that's going to give you the biggest problem. And once you solve how that's going to move... You, I share that mm -hmm. information with the composer or the dance arranger or the musical supervisor, <laughs> whoever's there. And, and as Kathleen, you know, the more you do it, the more accustomed you get to saying, okay, this is going to take yeah. exactly right. 16 counts to get that unit to the center of the stage. I know it. I've been through enough text to tell you that, so you got to give me that, right. that much music. And the yeah. stage manager is you know, your friend, too. You know, yeah. we... A, a, a great example is the dynamites in Hairspray, the end of uh, Welcome to the 60s. I'm l in the rehearsal room, and I know the set like the back of my hand. No one else does, and here's the end of the number, and we don't have any playoff music. And I turn to Mark, and I go, Mark, I have to get the house up, the house off, all the row houses out, the blue sky drop in, the, the thing in, everything else flown out. I said, make those girls sing for 32 playoff bars. Can you make that happen? And he gets down on the piano, starts playing. I stage the girls. And I have to get 14 people changed into, into orange gym shorts. You know, literally. So I knew I needed a, a minute. And so he played, he, he wrote a minute, and that was the playoff. You know, and that's how it, that's how it worked. But it had, you had the information before you got to that transition of how long it was going to take to move that set, yeah. how many people were going to have to change costumes and get back on stage. So that's really for and how you're going to keep that story moving, you know. And that really is a transition that was created basically to accomplish all of those things and how can I keep the story moving and I, I had the girls continue and by the time Mark and Scott then did the movie and Edna sang in the movie we, we went to London and then we added Edna singing in the transition so it, it took on a whole other life it was still the same amount of bars but now suddenly the leading character stayed on stage because they had written additional lyrics for the movie so it's that necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, One of my well. favorite things in Kiss Me Kate was our panic trio. <laughs> Which was, we had, it was a scene after everything goes wrong and, and he actually spanks, Petruchio spanks Kate on st stage and there's panic. And the next scene was back to this huge realistic backstage set which was going to take a good 45 seconds yeah. or so to get there. And so, you know, what are we going to do? And then we devised this whole thing that, that was really just a filler which was that, you know, in the chaos of things going wrong and light cues and things flying in and out, that three actors got caught downstage of the drape, that they bring in the drape and three actors are caught downstage and they don't know what to do and so they, the orchestra starts playing and they start making something up and we called it, it was three people, we called it the panic trio. And it turned out to be this kind of hilarious thing and it was only, it, it was only created to cover this set change. It had, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't like, oh, we've got a great funny idea yeah. to do. It was, you know, we it was, need to do something. Yes. Right. We got, well, the yeah. greatest story of all like that is Annie Get Your Gun, where they had to move the set, and, they had, and it was going to take a long, long time, and they went, okay, Irving, write us something. And he wrote, there's no business like show business, to cover a transition. Wow. So, which leads to the conversation about, you know, you know, when people talk about revivals, we have to, you know, stick with the original intentions of the creators. Well, Irving Berlin's original intention was not to have that song. <laughs> so you can't really make that argument because, you know, necessity is a mother invention. As you it, said. And you have yeah. to remember that, that those original creators, they were all showmen. They yeah. were all, they know how to create a show. I mean, George Abbott were around today. He, you know, the sort of classic George Abbott in one full stage, in one full stage. George Abbott were directing today. He wouldn't be doing that. He'd be doing all Vista transitions. He yeah. would have, he, he invented that out of, the necessity for how he wanted his, you know, to keep his stories moving. and On your feet. Forward. Much of it comes on your feet. Yeah. On that note, we need to let yeah, I need to, yeah. go. He's got to go conduct. <laughs> let these people do their jobs. Thank you so much. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.